0: You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 171 Dave Ebert and a funny way to overcome depression. Welcome to Halfway There. This of course is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I am your host Eric Devins. Thank you so much for choosing to join us. Perhaps you are on your way somewhere and you noticed there was a new episode of Halfway There that you could take with you to entertain yourself whether you're on an airplane or in the car and you chose to download and listen. Thank you so much for doing that. And if that's you, I am glad that you've done so. If perhaps by chance a family member you were at a you were at a gathering or a coworker mentioned to you halfway there, and you downloaded it and you're listening. Also, thank you to you for being here. I hope you enjoy it. Our episode today is a fascinating one. Um, I, I liken it to a seesaw a little bit. We go back and forth one way or the other because our guest is a comedian and he's funny and so we laugh and we cry and we, we talk about things and then uh we talk about how comedians often struggle with depression and so I called this episode a funny way of of overcoming depression uh because I think that's that's exactly what happens here uh but I want you to know that um that if that's you uh there's hope for you if the holidays bring on depression I know for many of you the holidays are a joyful time Um, you know, this year, normally they are for me this year. I've been wrestling with some things. We've had some stuff happen like a school shooting and a divorce in our family and just things that are kind of weighing on me, you know, financially trying to figure out how to make this online business thing work. Uh, so I'm approaching this season in need of some encouragement, like we're going to get from this, uh, this episode. And if that's you, I hope that this episode encourages you. As well. And if you're having a wonderful, beautiful holiday season and your life is a Norman Rockwell painting, great. Um, enjoy all of that as well. Um, so, friends, here's what I want to say. First of all, Merry Christmas. And second of all, our guest is he's founded the Well Versed Christian Comedy Group. Uh, he travels around. He's going to tell us about his Christian comedy festival that he puts on, which is pretty cool. And he's going to walk us through his story of learning to trust God and find his niche through pro wrestling yeah it's it's a fun episode our guest is Dave Ebert guys here's my conversation with him enjoy Dave welcome to halfway there
1: hey I'm glad to be here and you know your episode of uh, my podcast when you came on is one of the most highest rated one I love to hear that <laughs> we we, we cracked double digits so that's uh that was impressive
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah now I just feel sad, but that's good I'm glad to hear that.
1: well well I do want to let you know that your uh, your percentage of the royalties would be uh, sent out um uh, I hope uh, that you'll be able to catch
0: the, the, the check. <laughs> Fantastic, <laughs>
1: Great. Okay.
0: Well, good. We're starting off with some comedy. I like that. This will be a fun one. Uh, at least I think, I don't know. You could be serious. So Dave, thanks. Thanks for being here, man. Tell us a little bit. I gave you just kind of that brief overview. Cause I think it's always better to hear from the person who's passionate about what they're doing. Tell us what you're doing and, uh, and just give us that brief overview.
1: All right, uh, I, uh, uh, my wife and I founded Gift of Glory Ministries, which is the umbrella uh, over our improv ministry, which is uh, Well versed Comedy. Gotcha. And Well Verse Comedy is an improv troupe of Christians from a variety of denominations. None of us go to church together. We all met through various connections, uh, like Craigslist, uh, some acting uh, casting sites, uh, word of mouth, things like that. And uh, so God. Uh, it was a God thing to put us all together. Cause otherwise we never would have met. There is no other way. Um, so we've got a group of five. I'm the only guy on the team, which is a, a very unique dynamic in comedy. Um, so um, there's five of us that do improv. My wife and I perform together every once in a while. Uh, we go by the uh, name of matrimony. <laughs> nice. And uh, basically a lot of couples, they, they pay thousands of dollars a year for therapy. We just work it out on stage and, Usually it creates a laugh or two.
0: (laughs) That's fantastic.
1: And then uh, the other uh, thing under the umbrella of Gifts for Glory is Pure Fest, which is a uh, Christian uh, improv and sketch festival, uh, which is coming up uh, September uh, 28th. Um, And I'm not sure when uh, this will air, so it may have already happened, but uh, Pure Fest is definitely going to have a third year. So uh, keep your eyes out for that.
0: Very cool. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm working pretty far ahead, so it very well Maybe may have already come and gone, but that's okay. Um, if that's something that you're interested in, you can definitely travel there. And you do that, you're you're in the Chicago area, so you put that on in Chicago, right?
1: Correct. It's in the uh, Chicago suburbs, about 30 miles uh, south and west of the city. Uh, so most people would identify it as Chicago, even though it's not, you know, it, Chicago is obviously the biggest thing on the map next to it. Um, so we're in the suburbs or it's cheaper to rent and uh, safer to travel. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we're, we're in our second year uh, in 2019, and uh, we've already got that 2020 vision, which is a pun that you're going to hear a lot of for the next probably 18 months.
0: <laughs> you're right, a 2020 vision. Oh, I had not thought of that, but you're right. You know what I was thinking about? This is just such a random, weird thing, but uh, you know how – do you remember, because you're old enough, like when we were kids – you would say things like 1985, right? 1992, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh and that, and now and then it turned over to the new millennium and we're like oh it's 2000, 2001, 2002. We're still saying it 2019, right? We don't we don't say 2019. We say 2019 most of us, right?
1: But I think yeah, definitely I, I do think that most people will say 2000, 2000 um and- Every once in a while you say 2019, but it seems that the vernacular of the world is more like 2000. Right. I think there's something about the impressive sound of 2000. Maybe.
0: But I think 2020 is when we go back, and it'll be 2020, 2021, 2022. I think so. It's a weird – it's just – I don't know why my brain works this way. It's just a thing that I think about. So that's – there you go. Random strangeness from Eric. Uh, all right. So I love that you're doing this. You're doing comedy. You're making the world a better place in that way. You have a podcast. We mentioned that. Uh, but let's go back and go into your story and hear some more about kind of where, you know, how, what brought you to this place. So what, I don't remember, did you grow up in the, in Illinois
1: there? I uh, We lived here until I was seven and then my dad was, uh, had gotten sick. He was a Vietnam veteran, and uh, in his couple years in country, he got exposed to Agent Orange, mm. and uh, that, as we've seen, uh, it's really caused a lot of ravages on yeah. on uh, the vets. Um, healthy people, you know, in their twenties, by the time they're mid thirties, they're going on disability. They're uh, dying of of what's normally a preventable disease. My dad ended up dying at uh, sixty two years old from mm. a combination of diabetes, what they thought was multiple sclerosis and just all these different things. He had three heart attacks, uh, between 1982 and 1985. Wow. And it, it, his health was starting to decline in the mid eighties. And so the doctor said, you've got to get out of Chicago, go to a slower lifestyle. And so we moved to Virginia, uh, which is actually, you know, I'd highly recommend if you ever need to get away and you've got only got six months to live, move to rural parts of West Virginia or Virginia because every day feels like an eternity. Okay. That's a joke I stole. I can't take credit. <laughs> right. uh, yeah.
0: The rural life. Well, yeah. You know, what's interesting about that is my father-in-law, same deal, uh, exposed agent orange in Vietnam and then died. I think he was only 60, but had heart issues and diabetes. And so that's, that's not, uh, it's more common than you think. Um, definitely, He was on disability, and my mother-in-law received some of that benefit. And you know what? Even as a conservative, I think we need to do that because it was just horrible, some of the stuff that we did to people. So that's not really really here or there, but uh, I can relate to that is what I'm trying to say the long way.
1: Sure. Um, And one of the things that they are finding out is for anybody that may be a a descendant of a Vietnam vet is they're starting to see that some of the the DNA was changed also. mm -hmm. So some of this stuff is being passed. So it's important for – if you are a son or daughter of a Vietnam vet, keep tabs on your health and keep you know, going to your regular doctor visits so that you can prevent long-term damage from the things that were yeah. passed on. Yeah, absolutely. PSA.
0: I know my wife uh, wrestles with that as well. She worries about it sometimes. And uh, interesting. It's just – it's that's a weird thing to have to worry about, Kind of, kind of strange in a strange war. But okay. But I want to talk more about you. So let's talk about, uh, so you moved to Virginia and you found that every day was an eternity. You were bored. Okay. So what was, uh, what was happening there? What what was the spiritual climate like in your family?
1: Uh, we were kind of, we were professing Christians, but not practicing. Uh, kind of like, uh, you know, we had the gym gym membership, but we never went to work out.
0: Yeah. That's me. Okay.
1: And, um, and I don't mean that to, to talk bad about my parents. It's just, you know, the way they were raised, the way they were passing on to me. So um, when we moved to the South, we did go to church semi-regularly, um, and but it was a Methodist church. It was a very old church as far as congregation. Uh, children were meant to come and sit and be quiet, not to really be invested or discipled. And so I we had a couple pastors that invested, but it seemed like because they were investing so much in the youth, some of the old fuddy-duddies were like, no, you need to invest in us, but we need to get another pastor in here. So anybody that would invest in the youth seemingly disappeared within a year or went to another church. Um, So there really wasn't a lot of investment in discipleship as far as faith goes. And I literally believed growing up that um, no one knew if they were saved. They was just kind of a, hey, surprise, you're going this way or that way when you die. And I also believe that if you lived good enough, you had a good shot. Um, I didn't know anything about what it truly meant to be obedient and be a disciple. Like, well, at least I don't kill anybody. You know, as long as I don't kill somebody, I have a really good shot of getting into heaven. And that was just kind of where I was at spiritually. And it would have been it would have saved me so much grief if I'd been in a, an environment that was discipling because part of my story and a huge part of my story is, um, I battled depression most of my life. Mm. Um, it, it, you know, I kind of, you know, mentally flirted with, you know, that level of being in depression, uh, from middle school up to early high school. And then my sophomore year in high school, I just really dove headfirst into a full on deep, dark depression where, you know, suicide became a real option. I never attempted, and I always cursed myself for never attempting, uh, mm. thinking that it was because I was, I assumed it was because I was afraid of doing it. Um, but looking back, it was more th- of that still small voice, even though I'd never really had the discipling. Um, in sixth grade, I did say the the little sinner's prayer on my way back uh, from a a worship service at a, at a church camp. So I believe I was saved from that point, but I definitely walked away for a long time. But God was still there through the depression, keeping me from taking that uh, final step. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, that's scary. But it sounds like you, um, you know, even though you had kind of thought of yourself as being maybe cowardly, Mm -hmm. but rather it was God's providence taking care of you uh and, and keeping you from crossing that line. It's funny how he does that because he often does that with people. We and we attribute it to something that something else. Um but yeah obviously it wouldn't have been good if you had, had done that and so then we wouldn't have wouldn't be having this conversation. But so God God preserved you. What um okay, so did you were you aware of him being there at all? Or how did how did that start to um change not necessarily depression i know that may have may or may not have gone on but uh, how did your awareness of him start to change
1: it really never changed uh for a long time through um through high school then through college uh then after college you know the depression was always there was always a constant battle and i was always just emotionally spiritually physically just fatigued because of the battle and all through that time i used humor for two big reasons. Number one, I felt like I couldn't let anybody know how I was really feeling. I was afraid of being made fun of. I was afraid of the rejection. And the few times when like in college and I don't in- endorse this at all, but in college I uh, drank a few and, and I opened up to a couple of friends in that liquid courage state. And they're like, come on, Dave you don't you don't need to be depressed you got all this everybody loves you and it was like they were like rebuking me for having the willingness to open up like hey this is where i'm at and so i shut down there after college i went to a doctor and who's referred me to a therapist and in our 45 minute session i opened up said this is what i'm feeling and then he asked me some questions about what good was in my life and after that he goes you've got all this good stuff in your life. You really shouldn't be depressed. Mm. And, I, and I was like, that's why I'm here asking you for help. <laughs> right? So, why do you think I'm here? Yes. <laughs> like, oh, hey, you work out. You shouldn't be sick. Well, that's why I'm at the, uh, you know, the
0: ER. <laughs> right. Yeah. Thanks for that. So, yeah. Can yes. we can we talk about this for just a minute? Because I think the, the idea of uh, some of the funniest people in the world are the most depressed. Mm -hmm. right and we don't have any idea because they're funny because they're fun it's good to be around them and that I mean that's that's just one of the actual warning signs I mean this came up when uh, Robin Williams killed himself right right? because that I mean that dude was like he was insanely funny every like all the time I don't know what he was like in his personal life but every time I saw him you know he was he was just nuts off the wall and, and brilliant just brilliant right but he was actually really depressed and probably was for a lot of his life. That's, that's disturbing. So as a, as a comedian or somebody who's gone through that, what do people need to know about that experience?
1: Well, first thing um, I would suggest is when you have somebody that's that outgoing and that engaging like Robin Williams or, or not to to my own horn, but myself is take time to get to know them. Uh, actually make sure that they know that you're there for them. Um, Because I I use humor as a way to shield to protect how I felt and also, much like Robin Williams and a lot of these others, I also use humor as a way to make sure no one else fell into the same pit I was in. Mm. Because if I can get you to laugh, there there was that hope there that maybe your life isn't so bad, which at the same time was like a drug to justify my existence. So my biggest thing is just have a relationship and really talk to people. Um, I think that we're too afraid to get our hands dirty and find out the truth. Mm. Um, because what if I talk to that, my funny friend and they really are suffering. What do I do? What, what door have I just opened? Um, but especially for those that are Christians that are listening to your podcast, I would encourage you just to pray about somebody. If you see somebody that has those same kind of symptoms where, they're constantly trying to entertain, constantly being the life of the party. pray and ask ask God to reveal a truth to you say are are they really that good of, of a position, or do they need somebody to come alongside them and cut through the weeds and get to get to that hole um because there are people who are genuinely just funny and outgoing that don't have a battle going on inside right but that's where you need the revelation from, from God to the Holy Spirit. That's where you need to be in relationship and not take for granted, oh, he's fine or she's fine. She's really funny. I think, and also I think that one of the key signs is looking for self-deprecating humor. It, it can be presented in a beautiful and light way where it's like, oh, he's so funny. He made, he was joking about how how big he was because uh, we are on radio, so people may not realize I'm 6'2". Uh, uh, a couple biscuits shy of 400. <laughs> so you know, self-deprecating humor is a way to also distract because if I'm joking about it, that would also take the power away of that from somebody that may want to use it against me. So self-deprecating humor is probably a good sign that somebody may need some prayer and, and somebody to step in to come alongside. And I know I'm kind of – I'm not giving a lot of specifics uh, because every depression is going to be different. Every person handles what they're going through in a different way. So these are some signs. If they're self-deprecating humor, if there's somebody that's constantly trying to entertain, take a moment to pray about it and see. And then also don't be afraid to get your hands dirty. Even if you are listening to this podcast and you're not a believer, you just think this is an interesting topic. I would encourage you to come alongside somebody who's that outgoing and just say, hey, are you really okay and if they say yes, wait a week. Ask them again. Say, hey, are you really okay? Uh, is, is there something you need to talk about? And sometimes it takes three, four, five times to prove to them that you're willing to care about them and right. not just doing something out of guilt or, or some sort of compulsion.
0: Yeah, and you may need to build a relationship. There's all kinds of things that may happen yeah, sure. there. But just being aware, I think, is is a really huge um you know, public service now, I don't know what else to say, but it's just a huge, a huge wake up call, right? Just a light bulb that, Hey, this happens. And it's not, it's just not as um, clear cut as it seems on the surface. And so as I think as believers as well, um, we should have eyes to see that was one thing that Jesus always did right he mm-hmm. He could see behind the the question he could see the the question or two behind the question right um or or comment, and you see him do this with the woman at the well. you see him do this with the Pharisees all the time um even with like people that he healed he a guy who um he heals at the at the at the pool where he's like, "Hey, do you want to be well he's getting it so you know this guy's like real motivation in there." Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as believers, that's, a, that's something God calls us to at least practice, just wonder and, and care more about the person. So exactly. yeah, we don't have to say a lot more about that, but I just wanted to to bring that up because I think it's the experience of many, many co- comedians mm-hmm. and people who are just naturally funny um enough that we should, we should talk about it. So there we go. Right.
1: And I do want to add one r- real quick thing is it's starting to get better, but I think the church has fallen behind the curve on appreciating the weight of mental illness and of depression Um, because it's not something that you see. It's not something you treat with, you know, with chemotherapy or surgery. It's something that seems internal. And and a lot of people want to say, well, if you just pray hard enough, where if you get the sin out of your life, maybe it'll be better. No, it's, it's as much a, a disease as cancer and it takes prayer. It takes support. And it takes willingness to not give in that temptation of condemning or finding fault. Yeah. Because it's just like uh, with the blind man, when the disciples are like, whose sin made this man blind? Was it his or his parents? Right. And Jesus said, no, his blindness is not a punishment, but it's an opportunity for God to get glory. So when somebody's healed from depression, freed from the lies of the enemy, which is what depression ends up being at the very root. Is a bunch of lies of the enemy. When that delivery happens, it's something that can give God glory. So we as a church need to do, continue to strive to do better, because we have pastors that are committing suicide. I know. We, we have people in the church that are committing suicide, and it's it's getting better, but we still have a lot of work to do because you know the, those mental challenges are just as as threatening as, as cancer or a broken leg or, or other animals that we can see. Yeah. And a lot of
0: times I think this is particularly true for pastors. They feel like they cannot be known and still be mm-hmm. accepted in their roles. And that's a, that's a serious, serious problem. Uh, if nobody knows you, then, you know, you, you, it's just easy to hide and you can, that you can stumble into, into things like suicide. So, um, Okay. Thank you. That was, that was great. I appreciate you just kind of opening up about that and, and helping cause I, I know that it happens. So, okay. You, I don't even know where we left off where were you were in Virginia or no, you were in college. You went to like college.
1: Right. Um, I, I was still living in Virginia, went to college in Kentucky okay. at, at a small school. And um, you know, there I would use humor again as a way to, give myself value. If I was able to make people laugh at, at lunch and at dinner in the dorms, if I was able to do stupid things to get a laugh and to make life feel better for everybody, then I I felt that I had value, that I had a purpose to be there. But if I would go and I'd do something that embarrassed people, or maybe I said a joke that crossed the line and hurt somebody, then suddenly I had no value whatsoever. And that pattern continued through college And after I graduated college, I transferred back home to uh, school in Virginia. Um, And after college, you know, the depression was still there, still raging. I got into pro wrestling and um, pro wrestling became that outlet where I could be creative. And if I could get the crowd either to boo me or to cheer me, I'd done my job.
0: I had a how did you get into pro wrestling? Because nobody just like stumbles into, pl- well, maybe they do, but nobody goes, very very few people go, you know what I want to be today? I want to be Hulk Hogan. So like what, right. What? how did that happen?
1: All right. So when I transferred back home to uh school in Virginia, Bluefield College, a couple of guys were in the dorm watching a video of them backyard wrestling. They had, you know, the, a ring built out of plywood and oh, four wow. by fours. Um, with some remnant carpet padding and then a tarp over it, um, you know, well built, but, you know, obviously cheaply homemade, not, not the kind of ring you see in WWE. And I was like, well, that's kind of cool. Maybe I should try it. Cause I've been watching wrestling for years and, you know, as a huge Goldberg fan and um, huge Hulk Hogan guy. And they're like, yeah, because, you know, again, I'm, know, six, two, six, three, whatever, and at that point I was over five hundred pounds in college.
0: So you're there, Andre the Giant,
1: right? Yes, exactly. And because of the fact that it was built homemade with two by fours and four, you know, plywood, they didn't want me to do a lot of falling or, as they use in, in the business, they call it taking a bump, uh-huh. because the ring wasn't really equipped. Um, I broke a few pieces of plywood because you know, in the course of a match, you're you're gonna fall. So but that's how I started to get into it. And I was also doing part-time work in uh, radio as a DJ. My uh, radio name and then my later wrestling name was Big Boy Buddy Love. <laughs> and, um, So I'm doing the backyard wrestling, and then I'm also doing radio. And then all of a sudden this uh, wrestling promotion comes to town. It's a local touring group in Virginia, West Virginia. And uh, they're like, hey, um, why don't we – you know, buy some ads from you guys, and you send one of your DJs down to be a part of the show, and everybody was like, "Nah, it was kind of beneath them." And I was like, "I'll do it." I raised my hand. I jumped at it. So I go, and I'm a manager for the guy that's putting on the show, um, and he's wrestling against uh, Disco Inferno, or he's wrestling against Rick Steiner, with Disco Inferno, both from WCW, um, as his, as his manager. And so my my whole thing was uh, I was supposed to be this enforcer, to protect him from the attack. And so I went out there, did my thing, and they said you're not really trained, so don't actually touch the wrestlers because the you know, liabilities and you know, yeah yeah you know, whatever. So we go out, and it's a good time, and they set it up where they you know Disco Inferno and Rick Steiner still jumped this promoter uh, during the intermission period where I wasn't around. So three months later, the story is the promoter is mad at me and because I wasn't there to protect him. So we have a match. So my first pro wrestling match was a hardcore falls count anywhere match with zero actual training. Wow. And at one point he hit me with a watermelon. Uh, He jumped off the radio station van, which was parked inside the armory. (laughs) And, uh, and but I still got the win. I, uh, we worked our way back to the ring and, it being 6'2", 500 pounds, I hit him with the, the big Mark Henry splash, and, and it was a 1-2-3. Wow. That's awesome. <laughs> so I, I did right the wrong, though. I did go and I started training at uh, Jimmy Valiant's camp. Uh, Jimmy Valiant's a WWE, NWA, WCW Hall of Famer. And uh, he's got a camp in, uh, um, in rural Virginia. And so I went there and uh, trained for a couple of years. And learned uh, a lot about uh, how to wrestle, and I continued to wrestle as this DJ turned wrestler. And Spent a lot of weekends on the road. I'd go set up the ring, wait for my five minute match, do my match, and then tear down the ring afterwards. And you know, make maybe thirty bucks a night, which would cover most of my gas and my meal at the Waffle House. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's how I got into it, and you know what a lot of people are impressed about is I tell them that most of my improv training comes from my years in pro wrestling. Yeah. Like what? So give us,
0: give us some of those principles.
1: All right. So with uh, wrestling and with improv, you go out there, you've got a live crowd, you've got no edits. You you can't call cuts. say Oh, let's redo that. It's live. Uh, You're given a scenario and maybe suggestions of what's supposed to happen, but everything else is, is just a story told in the ring and or on stage and you go out there you feed off of your opponent or an improv your scene partner you feed off the crowd what they're giving you if they're giving you a lot of energy you reflect that if they're not giving you a lot of energy then you got to try to find a way to draw it out with something fun or something exciting and then also you get that kind of instinct of knowing is this the time that i give them what they want or is this the time that i give them a swerve do i it's all about, and it sounds kind of egotistical. It sounds kind of like a God complex, but when you're performing either wrestling or improv, you kind of work to hold the crowd in the palm of your hands. And then you work to either give them the satisfaction of seeing something that they're expecting or the satisfaction of the swerve that they didn't know that they wanted. Right. And so you and that's all based on feeding off of what they're giving you, what your scene partner is giving you. And and other similarities is let's say I go into a match with a with a guy that's either in a foul mood or he's just he's just blown out blown up and he doesn't have any energy. So we go out and we end the match sooner so we don't drag it out and make it look bad. In improv, we go into a scene and it's not going so well. We end the scene. We just edit it so that we not we don't drag it and kill the whole show. Yeah. Um, and I know I'm revealing the curtain back, but I think uh, Vince McMahon has done a really good job ahead of me of. And that curtain back. Wait, yeah, right. I know.
0: I was just sitting there thinking. Wait, do you mean to tell me that pro wrestling is not real? What?
1: It is real. It's just choreographed.
0: It's choreographed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's and it's staged. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that they do. Uh, it's very interesting. Have you ever seen? Um, I saw Jake the Snake talking about times when he like took the snake and uh, who was the other guy? Randy Macho Man Savage, and he was like. He had to like drain the venom out of the snake so that he could actually sick the snake on
1: Randy. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. That one uh, pay per viewer, Randy's tied up in the rope and then he got the the snake to dig into his bicep.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it was that. Way. Anyway, it's funny, but uh, very, very interesting. Okay, so that's good. So you're learning a lot of stuff about performing, and I totally respect, by the way, yeah. what you said about being uh, being able to work a crowd that just that talent fascinates me i think that is so astounding um i mostly have witnessed it in terms of musicians right so um to see people like okay it's no secret i'm a bon Jovi fan right so i've seen bon Jovi a couple of times
1: yeah title of your podcast
0: that's right halfway there that's where it comes from everybody knows living on a prayer so uh, but here's the good thing: is everybody who knows that will never forget the name of my show because they'll be singing it all the way home. Mm-hmm. But uh, the the uh, but that whole thing, like just watching him last time he was in town I, I, or they were in town, I went and saw him, and uh, people were starting to sit down like after the third or fourth song, and he was like, "This is a Bon Jovi show, get up!" and he got the whole crowd. <laughs> Nobody sat down after that, but he and he just kind of worked the room every way, like every. You know he was he was playing to all the different sides, and it just fascinated me to kind of watch as a bystander to see a professional keep a crowd engaged. It was really cool. So, as a performer, uh, it sounds like you've learned how to do some of that, whether it was wrestling or do it in in improv. And like I said, I just really respect that. I think it's I think it's a astounding and beautiful skill.
1: And it's really enjoyable because you know that in most cases you've got people that have paid their hard earned money you come and you want to make sure that they have their money's worth. And that that's all part of it. You just get that, that feeling of connecting with them. It's um, it's on some levels, it can be kind of a spiritual experience because you're connecting with so many people at yeah. once. Well, what yeah. if it is though? What a, what an
0: interesting way to go with that, right? What if it is a spiritual connection? I mean, we're all connected as human beings, but there's also this, there's more to it, I think than just mm-hmm. the, the physical, um, all that. Okay. So while you're doing all this, tell me what your relationship with the Lord is like and how, so you're starting to do more creativity. It sounds to me like you're discovering some of yourself, um, perhaps in ways that you didn't have outlets for before. What, what's that like?
1: Well, all through that time, I had kind of a, um, that distant relationship where I was expecting God to earn my affection like god you gotta fix this you gotta do this for me you gotta um give me a million dollars so on get a house and get my life together um hook me up with the right girl and it was always like i i was treating god as a genie and hmm. when when i rubbed the lamp really hard and nothing came out i would get mad at god and god was always he sacrificed himself so much in my depression because he just absorbed the barbs that i was in his way he's like I would curse at him like, Why can't you just leave me alone? Why do you gotta interfere with my life? Why can't you let me be me and let me be happy? And that was all speaking out of depression and every time something would go mad or go bad, I would I would blame him. I'd you know, say that he's messing with my life. Uh every time something I'm working toward that fell apart, I would blame him and say and again, just blame him for interfering. And uh, so I didn't, obviously, I didn't have a good relationship. I was very much estranged. I was the prodigal son, you know, having left my father and cursing him for not continuing to bail me out. Hmm. And um, one night it reached, it it really reached a a climax with my relationship with him. Um, uh, During that depression, I was driving home from an overnight shift. I was still very dark. It was probably four in the morning, maybe, maybe some maybe later, but it was still dark. And going through uh West Virginia to my home in Virginia, a lot of curvy mountain roads, so I'm by myself, I get into this really sharp curve, and you know the the depression's hitting hard, and I say, "God, if you're there and you don't want me to do this, do something now and It's like I felt him grow even more silent i uh, it felt almost felt like he like pulled himself away from me in that moment and it was a situation where if I just drove, driven straight, people would just assume, oh, he fell asleep and not would have thought and wouldn't have thought suicide. So it was one of those perfect moments where if I just drove off the road, nobody would know, nobody would be embarrassed. It was just an accident. But in that moment when I didn't hear from God and, and I didn't see the sky open and angels come and surround me, I got mad. I got mad at God and But the thing was I got mad and I went home. Hmm. It was in that moment where God, working in mysterious ways, he knew what I needed so that I would go home and not drive off the side of that road. Um, and he absorbed the anger and the vitriol I, had, I held for him to save my life. And it was just that's just one example. And it was kind of a climax uh, a few years later is when I really started to warm up to the idea of pursuing him. And that led me to leave the mountains and come back to Chicago. Hmm. Well, what let, what did that? What what was it that
0: kind of changed your perspective of God?
1: It was a gradual process. One uh, of my uh, a former pastor of mine called it. I was in the crock pot, where you are just simmering mm. for a long, long time uh, until you're ready to be served. And going from mid twenty twelve to the end of twenty twelve, there were like there was this war in my mind, and I'm using my hands because for your benefit, but not for anybody else's. This is radio. Yeah. (laughs) But you know, on on both sides of this mountain, there were two choices. I could either take my life or I could give my life. Hmm. And as I got to the peak of that mountain, I literally was at that point of one step to the left. I'm going to give my life to the Lord. One step to the right. I'm going to take my life and just end the pain once and for all. And uh, different things kept happening from time to time um, that would just show me looking back that um, I was, you know, I was not in the right place. Finally, I got to the point where I was really ready and God sent two kids from a Bible college out to my neighborhood. We had a population of maybe 200 people in that neighborhood <laughs> and they had no reason to be out there trying to pass out tracts, but they were there that Saturday morning at like eight o'clock. I was late for work and they handed me a track, said, hey, can we pray for you? I'm like, oh, I'm saved. I'm okay. I'm just really late for work. I blew them off, but I kept the track. And then that day after work, I got home, and that was when I was like, okay, God is trying to reach me because there is no reason other than God being there is another tap on the shoulder for those kids to have been there. And so I started reading Rick Warren's book, Purpose Driven Life, which had sat on my shelf for probably 10 years at that point. (laughs) Right. And and, uh, then I started reading my uh, Dollar General King James Bible, which is all I had. Yeah. And, and, uh, and then I started to pursue a relationship with him. Six weeks later, I've left my part-time job in my 300-square-foot apartment in West Virginia. And I took residence on my sister's couch up here near Chicago and just completely started over at the age of uh, 32 years old. Yeah, which takes a lot of courage right there. It was, and it was a God thing. My sister, um, whether or not she hears this podcast, I think it, uh, it would be safe to say that she doesn't have an active relationship with the Lord. Oh. And so God was still able to use her because as I was talking and saying, yeah, I really don't feel like I belong here in West Virginia. And I did want to ask her and put her on the spot, say, Can I move in with you to start over? Uh, but God put on her heart and she offered me the place to stay. And I was like, Okay, I'll take it if, if you're sure. And so I packed everything up in my uh my truck and drove on up to uh to Lombard, Illinois and crashed on her couch and uh just completely started my life over. And this was in March of twenty thirteen and it was uh, about two months later that I started uh what became the uh, improv ministry, uh well versed comedy.
0: Wow. Okay, so that was so that new beginning was really for you. Uh it, like a new beginning in every way you
1: right yeah so uh, and it was it was a like a rebirth, it was a new beginning because I came up here, new relationship with the Lord, and it was funny when I started pursuing the Lord in West Virginia, I kept trying to find a right church, but every time I tried to go to a church and try to find a, a home there in West Virginia, something would happen to keep me from finding a place to set, set roots. And I truly believe it's because as much as it would have been beneficial for me to be part of a church, God knew that I needed to move. So why is he going to put me somewhere to set roots if I need to leave? Um, so I didn't set roots in any church in West Virginia. And none of this is against West Virginia where I was. It just God's plan had me other places. Yeah. And uh, so you know, I, I have dear friends and people that I love and miss in West Virginia. It just it wasn't where God wanted me. And, uh, the fact that I'm married now and I've got, uh, this improv ministry and other things going on, it pretty well shows that God's plan had me coming back here to Chicago
0: Yeah. And you, so you found, you begin to find yourself in that. And so I talk about that a lot, um, as part of the spiritual journey, sounds like you had a long time in the spiritual desert perhaps. Right. Uh, but then. But then, when you come, start to come out of that, you're finding yourself. You know, finding right. finding out who you are in Christ, what He's made you to do. So, how has uh, well versed comedy done that for you? Maybe that's not the only thing, so you can add other things. But what is that? What is that like?
1: It, it was. It's been a process of redeeming uh, the scars of my choices and, and the things that went on. Uh, most of my depression and everything else I went with went through were results of my own choices, but those scars that were left behind, God has been able to redeem uh, because through comedy, uh, through the various things that I'm involved with in my churches, I've been able to use some of the sensitivities and the awarenesses that my experience have brought to reach people. And um, so he's used me through comedy, through actual ministry from the pulpit, I am uh, pursuing a, a ministry license to mm. uh, the Assemblies of God um, here with my, my church, and so I'm able to share from the pulpit uh, a couple times a year. And so it's just God is redeeming all of those all those pains and all those scars. Um, we call it. Uh, there, I have a, a, a show that I've been on uh, on Moody Radio, and mm. they refer to it as um, sacred scars. Yeah, and these are things where. You don't forget them, but God is able to continue to use them for the betterment of others. And so I've got quite a few of those sacred scars that I've been using through the various things I'm involved in. And uh, comedy I found, and improv especially, has so many applications outside of just being on stage. Um, It brings people together. If you get a room of 50 people who don't don't know each other, but suddenly they're laughing at the same thing together, They've suddenly bonded uh, on on that spiritual level. They don't feel alone because they've all admitted something about themselves, and they've all found that they have something in common, even if it's as simple as laughing at the big guy talking like uh, Elmo on stage. <laughs> do you do that? That's awesome. That <laughs> yeah, tickles. I guess that, that was that one was more Bobby's world than it was Elmo, but <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> Uh, but, yeah, um, and that's one of the things I enjoy about performing is, you know, I am, you know, very large, and I'm also on a cast with myself and four ladies. So it's always an interesting um, juxtaposition for me to play the lower status character, where the temptation or the expectation would be that my characters would be the alpha and, you know, you know being the dominant one. But I actually prefer to play, you know, the the under character as a supporting character and let the women play the dominant just because it's interesting to watch. And it's not what people expect, which is again, going back to that wrestling analogy of kind of having that feeling for what the crowd is looking for and and giving them something that they didn't know that they wanted.
0: Yeah. So in this season, what have you learned about God that surprises you?
1: What have I learned about God that surprises me? Um, I'm still learning that I don't have to earn anything from him. Um, I don't have to earn his favor. I don't have to win his favor. I don't have to be anything but his kid. And that's something that I'll go a week and be like, okay, I'm God's kid. And then the next week it's like, Oh, I got to earn God's love. God, I need you to, to, to show me favor here. So that's something I'm still learning. Um, And what else have I learned that surprises me about God is just how amazing he is at working things together Um, for the five of us to come together as an improv team that took a lot of moving pieces to come together at the right time. Um, Because one of the ladies had actually been interested in auditioning with us in 2014, but her life did not allow it at that point. And here she is. uh, She joined us four years later. And it was just the right time. Um, And it's amazing how he's able to work so many moving parts and on such an individual level. Um, Because in our finite minds, we're like, okay, maybe he has a personal relationship with you on Monday uh, in in August, but he's got a billion other people to worry about. So your turn may come again the next year or something. (laughs) Right. But uh, no, he's able to keep all the plates spinning on the, on those sticks without fault.
0: Yeah. I love that. And so he's definitely there providentially to, to kind of work all those things together um, mm-hmm. that, that we need. I love that. Wow. Okay. Well, that's cool. What else, what else uh, do you want to, to tell us about kind of wh- where you are now? I know you're, you stepped out to do this festival, right? Which mm-hmm. I, th- I think at this point it will be passed, but tell us, tell us about like, why you, why'd you start that?
1: Okay. Um in 2017 I went to a Christian improv comedy conference which I was surprised to find cuz I thought oh I'm going to corner the market as the only Christian improv group. Uh-huh. but then as I further got along into it and uh, there's a funny side story about that journey but I found out about this uh, improv comedy conference for for Christians. And I went there and it was in Milwaukee and the whole weekend I'm thinking like okay we've got a conference where there's workshops and there's some together time and their study. But what about a platform and a showcase for people? Because obviously there's more than me to come together and perform together and offer not only a chance for for fellowship, but also a chance to showcase that just because it's Christian doesn't mean that it's B quality or that it's not as good as what the world offers. Because Christian improv is probably – better and more entertaining because it reaches more people. Um, families can come in and laugh together. Whereas most world, you know, most secular improv, you're going to have the innuendos, even on a queen show. So you have to kind of limit who comes. Otherwise you're risking offense or you're risking, you know, different things. And also for me, I say we serve the ultimate improviser mm. because we walk on stage and we create a world by speaking we create our universe with our own rules by speaking things into existence. Yeah. And yeah, you know, that's on a very small level compared to what God did, but God came on the scene and he just spoke a universe into existence. Um, so improv is, um, it's just a great art form. And I'm like, we need to showcase this and give people a chance to fellowship, to build community and perform and have that platform. So that, that, uh, you know, 2017, I came back and talked to my pastor and I said, I want to do a, a festival where people come and perform. And he's like, okay. And I said, it, it's September of 2017. I want to do this next fall. So I spent a year planning, preparing, didn't have a budget, didn't know what really I was doing. And so I spent about 250 bucks out of our own pocket uh, to just buy different things, buy food for the event, buy some Facebook ads, but we were able to draw attention in, in our first year in 2018. We had a team that formed specifically to uh, come to PureFest um, from Denver. Uh, three people drove the 16 hours or whatever it may be. Yeah, it's a waste. They stayed in Chicago. And they came and they performed together. Uh, we had a team from Milwaukee. Um, and um, then uh, my team performed. And my wife and I performed um, as well. And we just really had it was just a fun afternoon. And so in having one year under our belt, 20 uh, going into the 2019 year, you know, I just hit the ground running. I've been uh, working as, as much as I can to get the word out. Um, And this year we have a team coming uh, from Lee university in Cleveland, Tennessee. Uh, We have two teams coming from Concordia university uh, in Chicago. Um, And then my team and a uh, a one man show that's coming from Milwaukee and as well as uh, my team uh well vs. Comedy is going to perform. So we've got a, a full lineup. Uh we've um as uh, as we're talking we have uh seven confirmed acts and by the time um you know everything goes down we may have more. Um so um you know, apologies to your listeners that I'm speaking in the future tense, but they're listening in, <laughs> in what will be the past. Tense.
0: Yeah, they are, but that's okay because you said you're going to do it again next year. And absolutely, um, I love I love what you're doing. I wish I could get out there for that. That would be super cool. I love this idea of a comedy night, even at your church. I think that'd be really yeah, kind of fun.
1: The the whole idea is also the the third level is to show the world that it's okay to come to church and and expect to have fun. It's okay to come to church and see that it's more than rules and thou shalt nots. That it's a relationship, it's fellowship, it's togetherness. It's because you can't put thirteen men together roaming the, the desert for three years without some laughter, without some humor,
0: <laughs> right? Um, and maybe some fart jokes. I'm guessing. Just, just yeah.
1: exactly. <laughs> I mean, you no. Know, Jesus, was like Peter, pull my finger, and he's like, "Oh, that wasn't the Holy Ghost." Well, uh, one of my favorite comedians, his name is John Brennan. He has an entire bit about farts. Uh, and he says that uh, the Sons of Zebedee are also called the Sons of Thunder.
0: <laughs> right. And- We've always assumed that's because they were trying to beat people up, but maybe not. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Okay. I will never look at John the same again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love it. Wow. All right. Well, so... You know what? Uh I think laughter is probably a good place for us to go What anything you wanna leave us with? Or so that's I'm I'm just gonna while you're thinking about that. Uh so it's Purefest.org, I see. And mm-hmm. uh, if you wanna check that out, even if it's if it's in the future, uh especially if you're in the Chicago area, you do that. But uh definitely for those of you if you wanna to, wanna to travel or you're nearby, you should you should totally go. Um, your website is gifts for the number four glory.com. And that's where people can find you and your, uh, podcast of which you've had some very auspicious guests, uh, including, including me. So you guys should all check that out. Uh, and what do you want to leave us with Dave?
1: Well, one thing I did want to say, I uh, meant to open with this was first, thank you for what you're doing with the, um, the Christian podcast association on, on Facebook. Uh, doing very similar. What I'm doing is trying to build community with like-minded people. Uh, And I know that it's, uh, it can be tiresome work sometimes uh, to monitor and try to build that. But uh, I I think you've done a a great job. And if there are any Christian podcasters that are listening, join the group, find it on Facebook because it's really a great community. I want to congratulate you for Mm. creating and manning that up for us.
0: Wow. Well, thank you for that. That is really kind of you. I found that uh, very similar to you. When I first started podcasting, I thought I was the only one, right. The only one with the vision to start a podcast that's Christian and not preaching. And it turns out that's not true. Uh, in fact, there's many other, you know, testimony podcasts like this. Um, but that actually is great because it means that there's a market, right. Right. Uh, it means other people want it. But, uh, beyond that, it was very lonely and there weren't many groups where we could all get together. And, Mm Um, there are other groups that will even teach you how to do some things. And I tried to do that for a while. And I finally decided what's better is if we just connect, I'd rather Mm -hmm. like somebody, there's lots of people who teach you how to podcast if you're, if you're looking for it and we can all answer questions, but what's even better is if we just have a community. So when people go in there and go, I'm so tired of this, I can't get any downloads. And I go, great. I know what that's like, you know, Mm -hmm. and that helps and hopefully advances the mission at the same time.
1: Awesome. Yeah. And know, um, yeah, just to uh, encourage anybody, um, especially if if you have anybody that's listening, uh, that no matter what day or night this may air, maybe you find it ten years from now on the archives. If anybody's listening and you're going through what I went mm. through, where you're in that dark place, where you're in that that choice of do you give or take your life, I'm here. I I promise you that I will be available. I have an email address that I give out. Um, it's Dave at gifts, the number four glory.com Dave at gifts That email will always be active and will always come to my phone day, night, AM, PM, middle of the night. Um, if you are in that place and you need somebody to talk to, I seriously am available. I say email because, um, email is a lot easier for me to answer than, you know, sometimes a phone call. Uh, but I want you to know that that email is always, always, always going to be available. Dave at gifts, the number four, glory.com. And we'll just have a conversation. I'm not going to throw a bunch of scripture at you uh, because that's not how Jesus really did relationship. It's about relationship and me coming alongside, uh, beside you as you walk through this, because here's the the truth. There's always hope. There is always hope. There's always a light at the end of the tunnel. Some people's tunnel is longer than others. (laughs) But I would just want to encourage you, take that next breath, take that next step, live that next hour, live that next day because it's worth it. And God will use it once you're ready to give it over to him.
0: Yeah, that is beautiful. Thank you for making yourself available in that way. Um, I love it guys. I'll have Dave's email in the show notes at halfwaytherepodcast.com as well. Again, uh, gifts, the number four, glory.com. And, uh, if you want to connect with Dave, Dave, Hey, thanks for sharing your story, brother. I really deeply appreciate it. Um, I, I had a great, a great time, just some laughs, some seriousness, and, uh, all the while through just seeing God's threat of providence. It's, uh, it's truly astounding.
1: Yeah, man. Thank you very much for allowing me to share. I, I love being able to share because I, my hope and my prayer is that it will help one person. If all these interviews and everything I do only helps one person, that causes God to celebrate in heaven, which means I've done my duty and I've done what I can for the
0: people. Amen.